Today's reading is Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're back in Romans this morning to give you a sort of the briefest snapshot I can attempt to give you. Romans so far, what we've seen is answering two questions. Why we need saving. We need saving because we face God's wrath for having lived apart from him and against him. Why we need saving. But also, secondly, how we're saved. That God faces the justice we deserved by his son bearing our sin and gifting us his righteousness. That's what we've seen so far up to chapter 8. Now at verse 12 of chapter 8, we see Paul addressing a different question. He is now addressing sanctification. To put it simply, it's all about the question, what do I do now? How do I live as a Christian? And this is important because this is an area that is very poorly taught. And there are two wrong ideas that are popularly peddled. First is a sort of legalism. It's this idea that now I'm a Christian, and in answer to that question, what do I do now? Well, I can and I must work to make myself holy with the Spirit's help. In order to become more holy, more like God, we need to follow a tight set of laws that will manage our behavior. Holiness is reduced to what we do, not who we are. In fact, it's old school Catholicism. Catholicism has no problem with the idea of Jesus helping in our salvation. No problem. No problem with the idea of faith, but it's faith plus your works. It assumes I have the capacity to make myself holy. But Paul in Romans 1, uh, 18 to 3, 21 has been clear that outside of Christ, I cannot please God. The first wrong idea is legalism. What do I do now? And the answer is, well, I can and I must work to make myself holy. The second one is the opposite. The fancy word is antinomianism. It means being against the law. And it says this, it says, I can't make myself holy and God doesn't expect me to do anything. The law and really any sort of sense of self-discipline and self-restraint is seen as redundant. This forgets that God demands that we obey. Paul began Romans chapter 1 verse 5 by saying that the gospel seeks to bring about the obedience of faith. 
This antinomianism, this lack of effort, is not understanding grace. It is not understanding grace at all. It is cheapening grace. It makes it nothing more than a pass for every day to be cheap day. So it's important that we have this answered clearly for us. What do I do now I'm a Christian? And that's what Paul does. But look at how he does it. He does it through this identity that reshapes all of your living, that you are adopted. So I want to share three points this morning from this. Firstly, order your life. Secondly, align your words. And thirdly, refocus your eyes. Look at verse 12 there with me. And he begins here, so then brothers, or so then brothers and sisters. What is he saying the so about? What what does he see that this is a natural conclusion of? Well, so far we've seen that outside of God you can't please him. Because you deny God, you reject him, you rebel against him. You self-sabotage and you self-destruct. You use and you hurt other people. That's human's nature. And God cannot be either loving or just unless he judges that. Unless he removes that from his good kingdom. It's no good kingdom that perpetuates that. But now, but now, God has gifted a righteousness to the unrighteous by Jesus dying for your sin and to make you right again. And so now we are not helpless slaves to sin. We have a new heart, we have a new mind, new desires, new strength in the Holy Spirit. It's all of this that Paul says, so then, brothers and sisters, What are we to say from all of that, all of this truth that he's given so far? What difference does it make? You see, Paul is always deeply practical, but there's no shortcuts. He gets there by being firstly deeply theological. And so you need to hear this, perhaps. If you are struggling in your practical, spiritual life, this solution is almost certainly not that you need to think less point of Christian theology is to empower Christian living and Romans may well be we said it right at the beginning of watching this series that it might be the first and the best example of Paul doing this for a mass audience not just a paid profession but for everyday people so then we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh The word there in the original language is you're not under obligation to the flesh. You're not under obligation to the flesh to live according to the flesh. What does Paul mean by that word flesh in the Greek sarks? Because it can mean different things. It can mean physical body. It can mean physical appetites. It can mean a sort of fallen nature. It can even mean the world as a system, as opposed to God. So what does he mean by saying we're not under obligation to the flesh? What does he have in mind? Well, it can't mean the world, because he immediately speaks after this of putting to death the deeds of the body. So that Paul here is personally, internally, focused, not thinking corporately, not thinking externally, thinking about 
you and me personally. And this is important. It's important. Because in the world, I don't know whether you'll have noticed this too, the problem is always something else, someone else, somewhere else, some system, some circumstance outside of you. It is never me. We must oppose that pop culture religion, deifying, glorifying, asserting the self, that I'm God, I'm great. Acknowledge me. The gospel always says, I am my biggest problem. It calls me to take responsibility. And it starts with how I think. Bob Marley's song, Redemption Song. He's exploring the idea of having to wrestle with the sort of heritage of having been descended from slaves and the struggle that that can be for people who face that. He sings, emancipate yourselves from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. He's quoting a speech actually by Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican political activist. The idea is that you can actually be technically free, physically so, but you could in your mind still see and carry yourself as though a slave. But that only you can really change how you see yourself. And only you can really change how you carry yourself. See, the gospel reveals a change of identity. That you are no longer slaves to sin. We are now adopted as children of God. But only you can free yourself in your mind from seeing yourself as a slave to sin, as a slave to the flesh, obligated to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Stark warning. The phrase there, live according to, it's maybe easier put in everyday languages. If you live day by day according to the flesh, it's a discipline is what it's getting at. Indiscipline, you see, is a discipline. It's discipline in the wrong direction. Do you see that? Indiscipline is a discipline. It's discipline in the wrong direction. I told you a few weeks ago, I've sort of got back into the gym after a very long time, and that I'd be seeking opportunities to crowbar that into sort of uh, any and every conversation. So um, here you go. Uh, one of the things I'm realizing for myself is that what I'm really doing is working to discipline myself, breaking bad habits and forming good habits. I love it. I love it more than I thought I would. But every day I get on the bike or I get on the cross trainer at the beginning of my workout, the first 10 minutes are the hardest moments of my day because all I can think about is how I don't want to do it, I can't do it, I should give in. And so I'm having to learn to break a habit of self-indulgence, of weakness, of excuse-making, and to form some new ones. Because lack of good discipline is not the absence of discipline. It is discipline in the wrong direction. It's deeply, deeply ingrained bad habits. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. 
The consequence of following the flesh, not Christ, is death. Not just at the end, but being a sort of walking dead. And so there's a paradox, isn't there? That what my body tells me I need does not lead to life. And yet, what my body tells me I don't need leads to life. Here's a picture of uh, the boys on holiday in a dessert shop. And the body may well say, yes, please. That doesn't mean it's good for me. I know you'd be wondering, did you buy one then? No, I didn't. But I did eat quite a lot of Leon's leftovers. (laughs) On a journey. What your body tells you you need doesn't lead to life always. What the body tells me I don't need often leads me to life. And here's the contrast. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, verse 13, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And notice that. God gives the strength. If by the Spirit, he gives you the strength to do it. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. It tells us it's a fight. It's a fight to the death. The gospel calls us to take responsibility, first in our thinking, and then secondly, to take up arms in a fight for our life. This is no less than what Jesus taught. Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 16, verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The good news is where living for the flesh promised life and delivered death, living for Christ promises life and it delivers life. Firstly, order your life. Secondly, align your words. We were traveling last week and so we were having to sort of travel quite quickly between different stations, things we had a load of bags and kids and everything else. And I don't know whether you might be able to spot perhaps a potential uh, problem that came up for me in the course of that. Here is one of our cases, the biggest one. And so, of course, it's so big, you think, yeah, cram everything in it. Uh, It's, of course, overpacked because I've poorly planned. And here on the right is just one of the wheels which is misaligned and jammed. And you would not believe the pain, the frustration, the internal Tourette's that one misaligned wheel can cause you because nothing else would seem to work, would seem to jam, would seem to them jut out and almost take people out. And there's a problem sometimes when our words over ourselves are not aligned with the words of God. Here's the explosive and hopeful truth underneath the help of the Spirit's direction in your life here. Verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Who is this about? Let's ask some simple questions here. Who, what, and how? Who is it about? It's for all. All. Anyone who is led by God's Spirit is a child. There's no league table. There's no background checks. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Secondly, what? What is it about? What are we? We are sons. We are children. 
We're children with all the privileges, all the rights, all the love and affection that a child can rightly expect from a loving parent. But then let's ask how? How does this happen? Well, we're led by the Spirit of God. The word there, lead, is uh, pulled along, like you might use for pulling along a dog on a lead. And this is in contrast to being led by the flesh, led by the world. So you might be asking, perhaps, am I led by the Spirit? Well, if you're a believer, if you're placing your trust and your faith in Jesus, you must be led by the Spirit when you came to faith, because he opens eyes. Your eyes won't be opened unless the Spirit has worked within you. And yet, this little phrase here, led by the Spirit, is a present tense indicative. If you're not big on your English grammar, what that means is it's talking about today, not the past. It's talking about today, and it's talking about something that you are, a status, not something that you do, an action. It is about a present status. So how do I know if I'm that? We'll go back to verses 12 to 13, because this is a natural conclusion from there. Are you fighting sin? Are you straining to follow Christ day by day? Then you're led by the Spirit, which means you're a child of God. You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And there's a series of contrasts there, isn't there? between what's received and what isn't. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery. You received a spirit of adoption. There's two spirits. Spirit of slavery, spirit of adoption. And there's two responses. Fear and a crying out. See, that spirit of slavery there summarizes some of the life before knowing Jesus, before being freed by him, being enticed by deceptive ideas entrapped by disordered desires, enforced by a dysfunctional world that leads to death. And on the other hand, there's the spirit of adoption, spirit granted because we're his children, which brings freedom, the freedom to cry out to him, not to cower away in fear. The word here, again, in English, it doesn't sort of totally do justice to what's going on and um, the, the word cry there uh, kraso in, in Greek is, is onomatopoeic again that's another fancy English grammar word it's a word that sounds like what it describes and it's a word that's used for a raven's cry a core it means to croak to let out a shout that expresses deep emotion a sort of cry that's immediate and felt and this is what children do isn't it uh, when Leon was a baby in fact, actually, we, we regularly, genuinely mistook seagull's cries for Leon, uh, and at times, Leon for a seagull, um, because it just sounded the same. That croak, that cry of desperation. And this is that sort of immediate, desperate cry of the child who has no filter, just simply approaches the parent with their wants, with their needs. Of course, because they know it's safe to do so. The spirit 
bears witness, we're told here, verse 16, with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit bears witness with. It's the same testimony as two words, son martyrio, the same witness. From it, actually, we get symmetry. The same message, same words. Align your words. You know the Spirit is near you when you know your heritage, when you know you're a child of God, when you know that that is your primary identity, not your class, not your educational level, not your income, not your sexuality or sexual preferences, but that you are a child of God. So it leaves us with three things to do here. To realise, to recapture, and to remember. Firstly, to realise. Maybe you haven't had yet that moment of realising this for yourself. Perhaps you're somewhere on the journey towards faith, but you may not be there yet. And so actually you need to realise that to follow the flesh is death. To follow the spirit is life. That in Jesus God sets you free from sin to truly live. So the application for you today is is simply this, to let what you tell yourself about yourself, about life, come into symmetry with what the Spirit says. The second is to recapture, because some of you will have had that moment, you'll have had that moment of realisation, but you're not there at the minute. That's not where you are right now. And you can blame a million and one things, but only you can recapture that moment, that sense of freedom, And so the application for you is to recapture that, to get back on track, to get what you tell yourself, to come into symmetry with what the Spirit says. And then thirdly is to remember, because we drift. And we need to recapture this because we don't remind ourselves. It's a day-by-day discipline to remind yourself who God is, what he's done because of who he is, who you are because of what God has done, and how you're to live because of who he's made you to be. And so the application for all of us this morning is to remember, to bring daily what you say of yourself into symmetry with what the Spirit says. Order your life, align your words, and then lastly, refocus your eyes. And look at this last verse 17 here. Paul's argument has been this, that we're to live according to the Spirit, verses 12 to 13, that all who follow the Spirit are the children of God, verses 14 to 16, and then lastly here in verse 17, that children are heirs. And so Paul leaves us off with one, a reminder of the blessings of adoption, and then secondly, a caveat of the expectations of children. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If children, then heirs. Now that we're adopted as children, we stand to inherit from the family estate. We're heirs of God, we're told. We stand to inherit all of the promises that God has ever made, that he's our God, we're his people, we'll be in his place under his rule. And we're fellow heirs, joint heirs heirs with Christ joint heirs like a lottery syndicate we share Jesus's inheritance with him because of him and yet there's a caveat to this there's an expectation there's an ask 
to be met in order to receive this great inheritance. Provided we suffer with him. Think back to that word just in the previous verse there, that the Spirit bears witness with the same testimony, symmetry. And here we are fellow heirs. And then there's a third word that does the same thing, sympasco, sympascomen. From this we get sympathy, to share the same suffering. In just the same way that we have that same witness of the Spirit, and that we have that same inheritance that we share with Christ, we don't have the same suffering that he experiences. There's no way of disconnecting suffering from the life of the disciple of Jesus. Jordan Peterson writes about suffering and commitment. He says, you are not committed to something unless you are willing to sacrifice. Commitment and sacrifice are the same thing. Let that marinate a second for you. You are not committed to something unless you're willing to sacrifice. Commitment and sacrifice are the same thing. Let it marinate. Because it's biblical and it's countercultural. But the word here is really specific. This, this isn't just about a general sort of work troubles, relational strains, kids acting out kind of suffering. This is really specific. The word there is pasco, suffering. From it, we have the phrase passion, the passion of Christ, the moments leading up to and of the cross and resurrection. It's the word Jesus uses for that cross event in Matthew 16 and 17 provided we suffer with him it's no less than he taught we heard it before but here it is again if anyone would come after me let him deny himself take up his cross and follow me he's not talking figuratively the path of discipleship is to suffer faithfully to self-sacrifice and to find all of true value because here's the result, and let's land on a real hopeful note here. In order that, we may also be glorified with him. And Paul is again doing that same thing. We may be glorified with him, that we may have the same glory, the sin docks, the same glory as him. In contrast to suffering, we have the same suffering, we follow the same path of self-denial, of self-sacrifice, and yet also the same glory too. The gospel always promises more joy, more love, more peace, more contentment, more life, more glory, more satisfaction in following Christ. But the road to that glorious end is death. To put this in more everyday language. Our boys have been obsessed with McDonald's. Uh, they think it's the absolute best sort of meal in the world. Any sort of celebration, anniversary whatever, you know, is relevant for going to McDonald's. 
And yet, what they're now realising is, even Aaron, staunchest fan, he now begrudgingly agrees that there are better burgers on the marketplace than McDonald's. <laughs> that actually, if you go just up the road to Five Guys, you, you will find an immeasurably better burger. Suffering is hard because it means letting go of something we want. Letting go of health. Letting go of relationships or relational expectations. Letting go of a desire for a certain income level. Perhaps letting go of sexuality. Perhaps letting go of a felt need for favour. Perhaps having to let go of a level of comfort. And our resistance to embrace suffering is because we're holding on to McDonald's when we could have five guys. It's always clinging to a lesser glory than that which God offers for faithfulness. You have to let go of the one to get the other. You have to suffer to be glorified. So set your eyes upon the prize. Order your life. Align your words. Refocus your eyes. We're no longer bound up in sin, helpless to resist, hopelessly awaiting God's judgment. We're adopted. He loves us. He's given everything to find us, to rescue us, to welcome us back home, to celebrate our return. You think of that picture of the father with the prodigal son. That's God over us. So order your life. Live according to the Spirit. Align your words with the witness of the Spirit. And refocus your eyes onto the future glory to come. Let me pray, and then we will sing a closing song together.